Welcome to week two of our study in James, and we're going to pick up right where Becca left off, right in the middle of chapter one, starting with verse 12. So let's read here. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. All right, now last week, Becca talked about trials. And she talked about how they provide an opportunity for character to be formed in us. And if you remember, she talked about the potholed roads of life and about how being on such a road is an indication to us that we are on the path to a very desirable location, which is that we would be full and complete, lacking nothing. Now, James builds on that point here. We're still in the same chapter, all right? And he says here that enduring temptation provides an opportunity for us to be approved. Temptation, then, is a potholed road before a very desirable location, because James also said that being approved puts us in the position to receive the crown of life. Now, James uses this word temptation here in the most general sense of the word. This word in the Greek refers to anything that tries you. It might be trials, could be persecutions, and of course, it also could be the enticement of sin. And before we talk about how to resist temptation, I want us to take a look at this word approved. This word means tried and found acceptable. All right, so James is saying here that we receive the crown of life when we're tried and found acceptable. And he also said that this crown is given to those who love God. So let's connect those two points. And we can see here that how we can endure temptation, how we can be approved and found acceptable when we are tried. We simply love God. See, we love him more than that thing that's enticing us. We love him more than the world that is pulling at us. Do you know that if you love God, it's so much easier to resist the pull of the world. So then love for God is a key to overcoming temptation. Let's talk about why this would be true. Strong's Dictionary says that temptation means a putting to proof. And he explains that the proving could be done by an experiment of good or by an experience of evil. All right, now you can be tempted by evil and we all know that, but you can also be tempted by good. Wealth can tempt you. Promotion, achievement, uh, recognition, These are all occasions of proving what is in your character. And you know, the enemy would just love to use your success against you, to use it to try and draw your focus off of God and on to the world. See, James said we're tempted when we're drawn away, when we're pulled by our own desires. So see, then temptation, it doesn't come from God. Do you know it's not even external? Temptation is inside of us. I'm sure you've noticed 
but there are behaviors, sinful behaviors in the world that people all around you struggle with. And those behaviors, they don't tempt you at all. Why is that? It's because there's no desire in you to respond to that particular thing. See, James said we're drawn away by our own desires. He said those desires in us entice us. They respond to an invitation from the world to fulfill a particular longing that we have inside of us. All right, then that, that desire, it conceives, conceives sin in us. That sin is then birthed. It grows up and it brings forth death. Do you know, we can't live our whole lives doing things that draw us away from God and that conceive sin in us and then try and stop that sin from being born. Do you know what? Once it's in you, it's going to be born. It's going to be birthed and it's going to produce death. So then we must deal with the desires that, that produce the sin in the first place. Do you know sin? It can't be birthed if it isn't conceived. And it can't be conceived if we're not first drawn away by our own desires and enticed. And this is why love for God matters when we're re resisting temptation. Because if we love God, see now he's the one drawing me. He's the one that's meeting those deep longings inside of me. And you know, when we love him and if we pursue him, our very desires will begin to change. They'll be re replaced by God's desires for us, and then those desires will be in us. And guess what? Those desires also conceive, only they give birth to life. See, so if you struggle with sin, you need to deal with your desires because it's your desires that will ultimately determine what is produced in your heart. All right, now James tells us we need endurance when we deal with temptation. And endurance means more than just putting up with something because we don't have any other choice. Becca talked about this last week. She talked about how endurance requires faith. See, she said endurance in a trial requires faith over time. And in the same way, endurance in resisting temptation is to resist the pull of the world over time. It's to pursue God because we love him over time. See, endurance is a time word. Anytime you see that word in the Bible, look at the passage. Whatever it is, it's instructing you to do. You may as well just come to terms with the fact that you're going to have to do that thing for a period of time. See, don't be surprised when you don't get every answer to every prayer you ever prayed the moment that you pray it. God says we must endure. And enduring temptation it's not passive. This is active. We actively endure by keeping our eyes on Jesus, who set the absolute perfect example for us in how to endure. Let's look at his example in Hebrews chapter 12. It says, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? By looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, Jesus endured the cross by looking to, actively looking to, the reward. 
and we endure our trials and temptations by following his example. We actively look to him. We actively set our eyes on him. Moses actually had this very kind of focus, and we can read about his faith story in Hebrews chapter 11. It says, By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now this is an interesting passage because it talks about how Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ. Now Moses was an Old Testament saint. So what did he know about the reproach of Christ? In fact, what is the reproach of Christ? Well, let's look at this. Reproach means blame or accusation. So when Jesus left heaven to come here to earth, to take our sin, to live and to die for us, he gave up everything that was rightfully his and he came here and he took our blame and accusation. See, he bore our reproach as though it was his own. And Moses actually made this very same decision because we just read that when offered the, the opportunity, Moses forsook all of the comforts and the, the pleasures of being the grandson of Pharaoh. He gave that up and chose instead to bear the reproach of the people of Israel. He took it upon himself as though it was his own. And we found here that he, he got the strength and the endurance to do this by seeing him who is invisible. See, so go back to what James said. You could say here that Moses endured the temptation to be drawn away by his own desires. Everything that Egypt was offering him, enticed, he, he gave away the right to be a part of that and enticed by that, and he chose instead to suffer with the people of God. And this is the same thing James tells us to do. He says, look, you need to look to Jesus. You need to see him who is invisible. It's a better choice. The riches are greater when we bear the reproach of Christ. Now, as James talks about resisting temptation, he then reminds us of a key truth that we need to know as we do this. So let's look at that. It's 16 and 17, which says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Okay, we need to talk about this. Every good and perfect gift ever given to you came from your father. Amen? Okay. Cancer is not a good gift. Poverty is not a good gift. Anxiety, depression, bondage, addiction, these aren't good gifts. Do you know if any earthly father would, were to give such a thing to their child and then say, well, that's a good gift, what would we do? We'd lock him up. Okay, well, you know, we live in a fallen world and bad things do happen, things that weren't your fault, but God didn't cause them. He just used them. See, this is important because if we believe God sends the evil to us, we're going to be far less likely to resist that evil in faith. 
If I believe God's the one tempting me, I'm going to be far less likely to resist that temptation because I'm not going to see him as my ally. I'm going to see him as my opponent. I'm going to put him on the other side of this issue. Now, even in a trial, God uses what is good, what is evil, and brings about what is good and what is perfect. And he never turns from that. God's plan of goodness, he never varies from it. God is always good. So then it would not be correct to say, God gave me this sickness to teach me something. It would, however, be correct to say, God used this sickness to teach me something. There's a big difference. See, we have to see God correctly in all things because if we don't approach the situations of our lives with the firm belief that God is good always, then we're not gonna be uh, fighting our battles of faith from a position of strength. The very foundation that we're standing on isn't solid and we're going to fail. We can't endure anything if we don't believe God is on our side, can we? I know I can't. All right, let's move on to verse 18. James said of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So then my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. All right, so James is talking here about, he continues talking about what is produced in us and how it is produced. And he says here, wrath does not produce righteousness. Now, this word wrath is interesting because it refers to a desire or excitement of the mind that comes from anger or vengeance. It is a desire to see punishment or violence. So see, there's that word desire again. What do we know about desire? We know it conceives. Does it not? Desire for vengeance then is conceiving in us. Bitterness, anger, and those things then grow up and they bring forth death. Do you know wrath, that seed, it can never produce righteousness in us because a seed always produces after its own kind. Now we know this in the natural. If you plant peas, you're going to harvest peas. If you plant corn, you get corn. And if you're planting wrath in you, a desire for vengeance, anger, that seed is not going to produce holiness in you. We're to put that aside. Do you know when a situation arises where the desire to see vengeance and be angry rises up in you, what does James say to do? Just stop, listen. Don't be so quick to speak. Don't be so quick to be angry. No good is gonna come from your desire for vengeance because it can't produce, wrath can't produce what is not inherently in it. Goes against nature. Only the seed of the word of God produces righteousness. See, James said the implanted, you could say the conceived word of God will save your soul. This is so important. We have to be mindful of what we are planting. Now we've talked about what happens when we plant worthless seed. Now let's talk about how to plant some prospered seed instead. Let's look at verse 22. 
Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. All right, so if we only hear the word and we don't do the word, we deceive ourselves. And the deception is, we think we know something that we don't really know. And then when we need to know it the most, we can't remember what we thought we knew. See, so I can give you an example. I can go to my Bible and I can read in here that I am victorious in Christ. And I can mentally agree with that and even say amen to it. But then I walk away and I never act on it and I forget what I thought I knew. So then I come up into a situation that looks a whole lot like defeat, but I can't remember victory. So I just very easily accept that defeat. See, I forgot what I thought I knew. And my failure to act on what God said is now robbing me of my victory. See, we can't forget what God said. And we don't forget what he said when we do what he said. We have to look into the reflection in our spiritual mirror. This is your spiritual mirror. And we need to act on what we see here. See, the word of God shows us our spiritual image, just like a mirror shows you your face. All right, we have to keep this before us at all times so we don't forget who we are. See, if I forget what God promised me, if I forget what Jesus did for me, if I forget that the Holy Spirit himself lives in me to help me, all things I learn when I look into this mirror, if I forget those things, I'm gonna fail. Now, James calls this mirror we're looking into the perfect law of liberty. This is our new covenant that we have through Christ. And we know this word liberty means freedom. All right, so James said that this freedom is a perfect law. What does a law do? A law imposes. A law regulates. Think of this. The law of liberty guarantees. It regulates. It imposes the promises that are in the new covenant. I need to know this law. I need to know it so I can benefit from it. See, what good is a law that protects you and that helps you if you don't even know that law exists? James said, look into it. I want to read what Adam Clark's commentary says about this. It says, the word which we translate looking into is very emphatic and it signifies a deep and attentive consideration that is given to a thing or a subject which a man cannot bring up to his eyes. See, it's too weighty. He can't bring it up easily. He therefore must bend his back and neck, stooping down so that he can see it to the greater advantage. See, what, what Clark is saying here is that we need to put some effort into this. We are talking about looking into a covenant that sets us free. How can such a covenant, the revelation of it, how can that be trivial? Doesn't it make sense that some diligence would be required on our behalf to know what it says? Now we're going to see as we continue our study in James that he talks a lot about acting on our faith. In fact, a major theme 
in the book of James is faith without works is dead. And we're going to talk about this uh, theme more in, when we get to chapter two. But for now, we just need to recognize something. If we have faith that the perfect covenant of God will set us free, then that faith is going to be followed by some effort to know what it says. See, if I could put that another way, if you really believe that there is freedom in the pages of the Bible, you're gonna, there's going to be some actions to follow that faith. What are the actions? You're going to be willing to bend your back, to bend your neck, and to stoop down so you can see it to the greater advantage. Now, your effort does not produce the freedom. The freedom was already provided by Jesus. Your effort just proves you believe it. See, if you believe it, if you really believe that there is freedom in this book, you won't be able to help but look into it. And, and can I just be really honest with you? If you're not looking into it, it's because you don't really believe it has what you're looking for. Now, if you would say that that's true of you, listen, don't beat yourself up. Just elevate your estimation of Jesus and of his word. See, begin to see him as truly being the answer to everything. Begin to see his word as being truly alive and active and understand more fully that you, you will plant the seeds of his word in your heart. They're going to do powerful things in your life. And as your estimation of Jesus grows, so will your love for him. And as your love for him grows, so will your desire to know him. And again, there's desire. That desire is going to conceive. And it's going to produce in you a passion for Jesus and for his word. Now, James said we're to look and to continue looking. And he used the illustration, which I absolutely love, of a man who just saw his physical reflection in a natural mirror. Okay, so he says this man looks at his reflection, sees it, and then walks away and forgets what he looks like. Now, I want us to think about this. If you only looked at your physical reflection in a mirror one time a week, say maybe every Sunday morning, how confident would you be right now as you're sitting here in your appearance? Now, you all look just lovely. This and I'm thinking it's because every one of you consulted a mirror before you left the house this morning. Okay, now I'm also going to make another guess. I'm going to guess that when you looked in your mirror, that not one of you said, oh, that's what I look like. <laughs> no, you're familiar with your appearance. Why? Because you look and you keep on looking. You're very familiar. You keep going back to it, correct? Now, I'm also going to guess that when you looked into your mirror, you believed what it told you. Right? I don't think anyone looked in their mirror this morning and went, well, it says that my hair is sticking up on this side, but I don't believe that. I'm just going to go with it. No. Okay, well, your faith in that reflection, that it is a true likeness of you, prompted some works on your behalf, did it not? 
You saw what it said and you acted accordingly. How much more important is it? that we continually remind ourselves about our spiritual reflection. Become familiar with that reflection. Believe what it tells us about ourselves and then act accordingly. James said, don't be a forgetful hearer. He said, be a doer. Because see, if you remember and act on what your reflection says, James says, you're going to be blessed in all that you do. All right, now James ends chapter one by discussing something that the church generally distances herself from, and that is religion. So let's read what he says about that. Verse 26, if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. All right, now we know religion is man's attempt to approach God. And Christianity is actually God's approaching man through Jesus. So religion focuses on our outward actions and Christianity focuses on the heart. Christianity as a whole is not a religion because we all know that any attempt that we have to approach God on the basis of our own actions is worthless. It's useless. And that's why the church generally avoids this word. But James qualifies his reference to religion by calling it pure and undefiled. So James is speaking here of, of an approach to God that is absolutely untainted by any self-righteousness. Now let's put this into context of what we've already been talking about. He's been talking about being a doer of the word. So what he's saying here is that the actions that, that will come out of a, of a lifestyle where you continually look at the perfect law of liberty, becoming familiar with your image there, the actions that come from that, they're going to be pure and they're going to be undefiled. See, they're not going to be tainted by self-focus and by selfish ambition. They're going to be actions that express love for God. We're going to serve others. We're going to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. And we're going to keep ourselves from the corruption of this world. That's just what's naturally going to happen. Now, the thing about our actions is, do you know, they can be deceiving. You can really think, you know, a person looks like they're super religious because they're doing all the right things. But we don't really know what is in their heart. In fact, we can be so good at this, at this deception, we can actually deceive ourselves. Do you know, I can think that my behavior and my works are for God when really they're not. And James connects this deception to our words. He said that we can't, if we can't control our tongues, then our religion is worthless. Now, what is the connection there? Well, actually, the tongue and the heart are very closely connected. Now, the tongue is going to be discussed in more detail in chapter 3. And we're going to learn there. We can't tame the tongue. That tongue, it's unruly. Do you know your tongue is going to speak whatever is in your heart and you can't stop it? In fact, James 3.8 says, no man, no man can tame the tongue. All right, so the tongue then provides evidence for what is in the heart. See, if my tongue is bridled, then it's because my heart is right, because there's no other way to tame my tongue. 
So if I have a, a heart then that is full of selfishness or hatred or unforgiveness, and then I try and cover all that ugliness up with a bunch of religious works, I might fool you. I might even fool myself. But eventually, my tongue's going to give me away. My words are eventually going to prove that my heart is deceived. And the deception is that works can somehow be acceptable if your heart isn't right. Because we know the truth is that no amount of works without a pure heart of love for God are going to amount to anything. And we're deceived if we think otherwise. And this is the same thing that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13. He said, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love. I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and un can understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. See, Paul says here, we can operate in spiritual gifts, know great mysteries, move mountains with our great faith, and even give away everything we have up to and including our own lives. But if it isn't done with a heart of love, it's worthless. It counts for nothing and we are deceived. And see, this brings us back to where we began this lesson. God has promised the crown of life to those who love him. Now, the underlying action then of everything that we've discussed, both this week and last week, is that we need to love God. Now, the good news is, loving God, it's not hard. In fact, trying to do all of the things that we talked about doing today without loving God, that's hard. But loving Him is easy. And when we love Him, really the rest just falls into place. And the reward is so great because the crown of life is given to those who love God. And what could be more valuable than that? Amen? All right, let's just pray quickly. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for the image in that word, our spiritual image. I pray, Lord, that all of us, out of a heart of love for you and to know you and to know what you say, that we would pursue that image, that we would daily return to it so that we can become familiar with it. And I thank you, God, that as we do this, your word promises that we will be blessed in all that we do. So we commit ourselves, our lives to you in Jesus' name. Amen.